Uh, I want to start this evening with a poem I wrote for Inquiring Mind for the next issue. It's a kind of piece of doggerel, really. But um, it was inspired by a poem by Allen Ginsberg of the same title, Why I Meditate. I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was young it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Alfred E. Newman, et al. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. <laughs> I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I meditate because I want to touch into deep time where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi does or did or as Walt Whitman did or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. I meditate because I've discovered that my mind is a great toy, fun to play with. I meditate sometimes because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta Hindu master once told me that in Hindi my name Niskar means non-doer. I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because Robert Thurman called it an evolutionary sport and I want to be on the home team. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all other nations in the world combined. If I had more courage, I'd probably set myself on fire. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma Vihara, the divine abode of awe. And then I'll go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm building a bigger and better perspective and occasionally I need to add a new window. Those are just some of the reasons I meditate. The list goes on. So this evening, I want to talk about your mind. And I can say that because... Uh, it's also about my mind. It's about our mind. Uh, we, we do share a moment in evolutionary history, a moment in the development of consciousness. We're all kind of at the same level. And we share a culture. And uh, most likely, if you switched awareness with the person sitting next to you and watched what was going through their mind, it would look rather familiar. Maybe some of the details would be different, but uh, basically it'd be the same stuff. Uh, we might not be quite as attached to it and, you know, caught up in it. It'd be a little bit easier to just sort of be mindful observer. One of the most significant things that's happened to me in my meditation life has been a shift in my relationship to my own mind. We're still friends. 
but we're no longer quite so codependent. It all started in my first meditation retreat, uh, where I think I had two of the most basic insights. Insights which keep arising again and again as I go through this practice in my life. The first insight was that there is this quality called mindfulness. Uh, I was 26 years old. I had a degree from a good American university. I had done some therapy, some Freudian therapy, Gestalt therapy. But nobody in my culture had told me that I could actually develop this quality of mind and step outside of my own drama and observe myself. It was a real, a real revelation. The other great insight that happened on that first retreat was that I saw that I was not in control of my mind. And what a shock that was. I mean, it was, it was, it was a radical kind of pulling the rug out from under me, you know. The instruction was simple, just pay attention to your breath. And my mind continued to think and make plans and have fantasies and without even consulting me. It just went on, as I'm sure you know, how it can go on. I began to realize that my mind has a mind of its own. And it was a real revelation. That was an, another real revelation. And it's a revelation that happens to me over and over again. Quite often, I will sit down to practice, just daily practice, and realize, oh, yeah, before I sat down and engaged this mindfulness or remembered, I was completely lost in the drama going through my head, completely caught up in it totally mindless of what was going on, just com consumed by my own uh, mental produ productions. And that, the fact that I can continue to be surprised by it is an, an indication of how this path is, is really a long path and that we as a species are at the beginning of this awakening that we're having. That we're working with minds that have been very deeply programmed, as you will see a little bit later in the talk. Um, these revelations, uh, I think, are very profound, and they, they're, they're, they're very unique in, in some way, in, and especially in our culture, although I think it's, it's species-wide. This is uh, the Tibetan sage Tulku Ergen, who died uh, just a number of years ago. Um, the stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person. Often called dark diffusion, in this state there is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That is the normal state of human beings. Our civilization has come to really emphasize our identity as what goes on in our thinking mind. Basically, heads are us. Uh, we get graded in school on how we can, how much content we can absorb, how much we can put into the minds and how we manipulate that content. Um, Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am. That was, that's the core of it. I think he should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. Or maybe he should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. What happened to that part of our identity? I find it rather ironic that I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life 
learning how to ignore my thinking. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> Strange, isn't it? But I don't want to give the impression, of course, that thinking is bad. It's what we do as a species. It is part of our genius. This ability we have to make up these complex symbols uh, and, and that we share the meaning of and we can pass uh, these, our information around to each other and pass it on to future generations. It really helps us thrive and survive. And uh, thinking is, is, is a brilliant adaptation. But I think as a species we have come to overemphasize its importance and its place in our identity and how much it really consumes uh, how we think about ourselves. As a species, I think we've become, we've grown to believe that thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Charles Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought which is a secretion of the brain deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter. It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. What they are saying is that thinking, the thinking mind is basically an adaptive tool. And that is how the Buddha saw the thinking mind. In the Buddhist texts, thinking is another sense. It's the sixth sense. Not that different than sight. It's a, it's a process that helps us read the environment at a distance, <laughs> read the environment in time even. We can think about the past, we can think about the future. Brilliant. But nonetheless, an adaptive tool that allows us to read the environment. And it is very useful to begin to understand the thinking mind as a biological function and uh, as a survival adaptation. It helps us to demystify and depersonalize this process that we are so consumed by and so identified with. Take a meditation session, I, I suggest to, to you, and, and see how many of your thoughts can somehow be categorized as survival thoughts. That would be thoughts having something to do with money, sex, uh, shelter, uh, your place in the pecking order. Basically, the whole, almost all of them. I mean, you might say, well, I have some artistic thoughts or, you know, fine. But most of them, 20,000, 30,000 years ago, our ancestors, their minds probably filled with thoughts like, what color should I paint my spear? And, uh, you know, who's watching the fire tonight? And, you know, uh, should I go on the hunt tomorrow? Our thoughts, you know, 501K, did I do that right? Uh, you know, what does my boss think of me? But basically the same stuff. Basically the same stuff. Now, it's particularly helpful, I've found, and it's, a, it's an... Uh, an investigation that has been fascinating for me and, and wondrous for me. To know what modern science, cognitive science, is saying about our thinking mind and the brain and how it works. I did a lot of research on this for my book, Buddha's Nature, uh, which is a, about how evolutionary science and Dharma kind of uh, flow together. And uh, the new cognitive science is really radical. And it is confirming what the Buddha taught. 
I mean, we're sitting here and we're looking at our minds with this quality of mindfulness. And in the laboratories, the scientists are looking at the brain and the nervous system with these MRIs and CAT scans and PET scans and squids. That's the superconducting quantum interference device. (laughs) And they are taking pictures of how this whole process works. And they're, they're rather shocked, or as shocked as scientists get. Uh, first of all, they're finding that most of our mental processes take place beneath conscious awareness on what neuroscientist Daniel Dennett calls the subpersonal level. In other words, you are not involved in the process that produces most of your interpretation of the world, And it turns out even your behavior and your decisions. That consciousness, you, what you think of as you, come in late in the game. Quite late in the game. A now famous experiment by cognitive scientist Benjamin LeBay shows that the brain makes decisions for us. He wired up his subjects with all these instruments and the brain pictures were being taken and the galvanic skin responses. And He told the subjects to when they felt like it, randomly, whenever they felt like it, to move their, their finger. And he discovered that the brain went into readiness preparation It started to make the movement a half a second before the subjects made a conscious decision that they were going to move. Does that sound normal to you? I mean, don't you decide when you're going to move? LeBay discovered, quote, What we think of as voluntary actions begin as unconscious cerebral processes. In a book called The User Illusion, one one scientist writes, This means that our consciousness is fooling us, claiming that it makes the decisions, that it is the cause of what we do, and yet consciousness is not even there when the decision is made. We are being duped. Or at least we don't see the truth. And the reason that we don't see the truth is because brain activity is so complex and so fast. I mean, we we are possessed of a marvelous, just amazing organ. It's estimated that the brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. 11 million bits of information a second. That's all all the stuff coming from inside of you and from outside of you. 11 million bits of information a second. It it processes it and gives you a single conscious flash of what it deems you need to know. Moment after moment after moment. 11 million bits of information now gives you this, gives you this, gives you this. The scientists call it the binding problem. They don't know how it happens. It's so complex. They call it the binding problem. I would think of it as the binding miracle. but And the brain processes all this information to many different little brain regions. A lot of little specialized groups of cells processing all this information. The, the brain is so specialized in its little areas of, of, in its little work areas, that loud sounds and quiet sounds get processed in different subsectors of the auditory center. In the verbal center of the brain, uh, one group of cells will handle nouns and another group of cells handles verbs. And uh, in the visual center, one group of cells is activated when there's a face, when you see a face. Another group of cells activated when a face is looking at you. And all these little um, brain agencies, it turns out, are just basically doing their job. They receive information, chemical and electrical information, and pass it on as they are designed to do. But they have no idea who they're working for 
or what the outcome is supposed to be. As one scientist says, the different brain regions have no more sense of self or soul than your liver. So you're walking down the street. You notice someone coming towards you. Streams of photons hit the retina of your eye or turned into electrical signals, get sent to the visual cortex. And the brain, all parts of the brain are in a continuing resonating communication with each other. So as the image is being assembled in the visual cortex, a kind of conference call starts to happen. And, and uh, the memory center is, is activated. Mm, is this uh, familiar? You know, uh, let's go through the, the, the listings, the directory. And then uh, the emotional center is alerted. And do we like this? Are we going to like this? What's going on here? And then all the other senses, the information coming from all the other senses is, is added to that. Plus, how determined you were to walk down the street and get to where you're going. And in the end, whether you cross the street or come up and, and wave or greet the person coming towards you is, is kind of a brain jerk reaction is what I call a brain jerk reaction that your past experience and psychology and evolutionary demands have determined for you what you're going to do. Cognitive science scientist Marvin Minsky says, just as you can walk without thinking, you can also think without thinking. <laughs> now, what's really interesting is that as meditators, we can start to get a glimpse of this, a glimpse of how our mind can not only work without our will, but can work against our will. And how conditioned it is to go through its litany of issues and stuff that we take to be so personal to us. But uh, we really begin to get an understanding of the process of how the mind is working. We see this thinking process uh, sort of arise out of nothing that we do. And then we... we if we're really mindful and concentrated, we can kind of almost decide to ignore it or not, except something really heavy will come along and re refuse to let us ignore it, will drag us into its vortex. But we really start to see, we're really starting to see the mechanism of thinking itself, not, the con not just the content, which is, a, which is really a radical insight to begin to see the process. Now, as I said before about, you know, looking and checking to see how many of your, your thoughts have something to do with survival. This is a neuroscientist, Melvin Connor, on some experiments they've done with the lateral hypothalamus, which is the motivational portion of the brain. He says the, the hypothalamus has characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. <laughs> that seems to be organically what we get, our chronic internal state. And boy, you start to be able to see that in meditation, right? How dissatisfied the mind always is. Wanting something, you know, wanting to move, wanting the bell to ring, wanting, 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 wanting. It's just constant. And as, as the more you start to be tuned to your mind, the more you really become familiar with that chronic dissatisfaction that is built into us. And that was what the Buddha saw, too. He made it the basis of his second noble truth, that the cause of our suffering is not the fact that we haven't realized or satisfied our most recent desire. It is the desire wheel itself that is causing us our suffering. And his third noble truth is that we can actually work with it, that as we begin to see it and see it clearly, we can learn how to calm 
that instinctual mind that is continually dissatisfied, we can begin to learn a different kind of a happiness. It was, it, it was a radical insight. I mean, t- totally. We're, we're really starting to see how the sausage is made, to use a old metaphor. One of the most significant things that happened in my relationship to my mind over the years, my thinking mind in particular, uh, after a number of years of practice, I really began to recognize that beneath my thinking mind were almost always some kind of mood or emotion. And that that was really what was running the show. And that the thinking mind was, was being generated by this engine of feeling. And the more I dropped out of my thinking mind and came into my body and felt the feelings that were moving through me, uh, the more I was able to sort of break that sense of individualism that is so predominant when we're really identified with our thinking mind, when we can feel the emotions that are moving us, they're much more generic. It's much easier to think of, of them as not ours, but a quality of being human. Fear, anxiety, joy, sorrow. As we can be with them and hold them in mindfulness, we really learn a different identity. We gain what, what I call species, uh, uh, knowledge of our species self. Um, we gain what I would call evolutionary intelligence. When we're in our thinking mind, we were really in an individual, uh, in a monad, as I think Leibniz or one of those guys, Spinoza, one of them put it. When we're, when we're with the emotions, we, uh, we are, we're, we're in a universal uh, situation. Now, evolution is a really wonderful way to understand your brain. And I, I'm referring in particular to a discovery made by Dr. Paul McLean at NIMH in the 1960s, one of the most important revolutionary discoveries of the 20th century. He was studying the evolution of the brain and found that we don't have a brain. We have three brains. We have a reptilian brain, the brain stem, the mammalian brain, the limbic system, which grows over the brain stem, and the new human brain or neocortex that kind of grows over the top of it all. Uh, and they, these brains develop in us, in the embryo, just the, in the same order they develop in, developed in nature. Uh, but what McLean discovered also was that our one brain doesn't override the brain that preceded it. In fact, they're all very intimately interconnected. And in fact, the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain are really fully engaged and doing most of the work of our psychic life. Uh, We only use maybe 30, 40% of the full capacity of our new human brain. And there's some speculation that we use that part of our new human brain just to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. Now, that sounds like a joke, and it is kind of funny, but there's a lot of evidence to back it up. There's more and more research about the left hemisphere of the brain being the interpreter, what they call the interpreter program. And everything we do gets woven by this interpreter program into the story of our life so that we have a sense of meaning and integrity. But uh, it's basically a storyteller, and that's all it is. It doesn't really run the show. So who runs the show? Uh, uh, just a, a fact here. Uh, emotions go back 100 million years in evolutionary history. The cognitive processes, the thinking mind goes back at, 
at best uh, a couple hundred thousand years. Now, the lower brains, I just want to make this clear. Uh, we're not bad-mouthing the lower brains. They are great. They, I mean, we've got to bow to them deeply. What would we do without them? The, the reptilian brain, the brain stem, takes care of your body temperature, regulates it, your breathing, your heartbeat, uh, your sex drive, your hunger. I mean, if you had to consciously do all that, you wouldn't have any time to think at all. I mean, you know. Okay, next breath. Or heartbeat, wait, wait. Brilliant. It's just, it's just an amazing uh, awe arises. But the question then is, who is it that makes your decisions for you? And, well... We don't know. But what is becoming clear is that you are not necessary, really. <laughs> this is a Time Magazine cover story. It was a cover story of Time Magazine the summer of 1995. I found it so fascinating. It, the cover story was entitled, In Search of the Mind, Summary of the Latest Cognitive Science. And this is, you know... Ten years ago, and that's a long time in this field, which is just exploding. So in search of the mind, the, the article concluded, and I took it down because it was so. Mm. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. This is Time magazine. These are scientists. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? <laughs> the self doesn't exist? Why weren't people leaping out of buildings? What was going on? See, it turns out that the, the brain is, is a self-organized, what they call a self-organizing system. And it really doesn't need you. This is neuroscientist Daniel Dennett. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron. And then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. Now, I was wondering whether the scientists who are now studying the brain would be feeling any sense of self-liberation, maybe. Can't find the self, I mean. Anyway, I, I had a chance uh, to interview a very renowned cognitive scientist, biologist, uh, and, a, and a Buddhist, the late Francisco Varela, who was, who was very uh, highly regarded in, in scientific circles, started a whole new theory uh, in biology, he said that, uh, and I interviewed him for Inquiring Mind, he said many cognitive scientists close the door of the lab after studying all day about the selflessness of the brain and go right back to their normal self-absorbed life. He says the best science can do is give a stamp of validity to the notion of selflessness. And his conclusion is you can have an intellectual understanding of anatta while the emotional root that weaves that understanding into your life remains absent. And that's what I think we are doing, partly in meditation practice, is that we are weaving our understanding of our own brain and our own mind as we witness it. We are weaving what we are seeing into uh, an emotional root, that, uh, into the core of our being. We're really seeing that, you know, uh, how much our conditioning is, is in charge and how we can actually learn to ignore it or override it or, to some degree, uh, be okay with it. I reminded uh, Francisco Varela of what Richard Dawkins had said, a famous British uh, biologist. The brain is designed by evolution, Dawkins says. 
The brain is designed by evolution not to believe in evolution. It wants to believe that it created itself. And then Varela said, yes, and the brain is designed not to take the, the Dharma seriously. Which is why, you know, we can see it in meditation and then get up and, and be totally lost in our game again. Because, you know, that's just the way it is. And, but again, we are at the beginning of this whole new understanding of ourselves. This is, you know, this is a, a new game in town. Which is why you should forgive yourself all the time, because you're not going to be good at it. You know, the brain, uh, according, according to the evolutionary scientists, you're working with a brain that was designed primarily for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That explains your addiction to shopping, of course. <laughs> you know, if it's out there, you just go get it. You know, it's, it's out there. But it also explains what you're, what you're looking at, you know, what you're witnessing in meditation. In meditation, we, really, we, we are really seeing, and we're seeing it in ourselves. The thing about the scientist, he looks at somebody else's brain, you know, and we're looking at our own. And that makes a huge difference, a huge difference. We can, we can make this... This uh, insight personal and, and make it relevant in our lives. This is Ajahn Chah. When we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Feeling, memory, perception are all shifting through the mind like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. It's the gift of this practice is to be able to see this and to be, to be able to free ourselves so that we don't drown so fully in every thought that comes along or every emotion that comes along. We see it as a process that we inherit and we can embrace our, ourselves as, you know, a, a human being that is that has all of these qualities and it's OK. And we aren't we aren't wrong or failing. It's just uh but we're waking up and learning perhaps how to be free for the first time. This is the disciple came to Bodhidharma and said, please help me quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, OK, bring me your mind. I'll quiet it. The disciple a few minutes later said, I can't find my mind. Bodhidharma said, yeah, now I've quieted it. So, do we want questions or do you want to go home and go to bed? <laughs> Any burning questions? I'll read it. I have a poem I want to conclude with, but yes. The poem that you read at the beginning, is that online or in one of your books? Oh, no, no, that poem is coming out in Inquiring Mind in the fall issue. Your mind is just so totally dumbfounded about itself. You're just like, I mean, we could all do the, you know, the Homer Simpson thing, because that's dope. It's kind of like that, isn't it, you know? And all the all the suffering that you, you, you caused yourself, I mean, and it wasn't your fault. <laughs> yes. How did they figure out how long ago different parts of your mind evolved to do certain things? How did they how did they decide how different parts of your mind evolved at different times in in evolutionary history to do different things? Um you know, I don't really know. Um, I mean, I think they look, you know, they'll look at, uh, they'll study um, other mammals or primates. You know, they'll study primates and other mammals, and they'll look at what their brain is like and their nervous system is like and what they can do. And 
I think that's partly how they do it. Um, I mean, they they think that, well, they say that our brains uh, were just about the same size as they are today, uh, a couple hundred thousand years ago, but humans didn't develop this full-blown culture and civilization, this complexity, because it was too cold. I mean, we're going around this summer complaining about global warming. We have to remember that for thousands and thousands of years, we walked around the planet complaining it was too cold. You know, glaciers were covering most of North America and Europe, and, uh, you know, we're so fickle. Now it's, now it's too hot. Now it's, too, it's, it's as if we think the planet was made for us, you know. It should be just the right temperature all the time. I'm sorry, I don't really know the answer to your question. <laughs> so. Ken Wilbur has a theory of kind of hierarchical organizations. Um, holons. Holons. Yeah. How would you um, describe the cognitive sciences in terms of his theory? Oh, boy. I probably couldn't. Twenty-five do it. words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that. I mean, I think that you know, the idea of holons is that you know, inside of the molecule is the uh, the atom, and inside of the you know that everything is sort of encompassed in increasing complexity by its previous form. Uh, I, I would just say that you know that. As a human being, and my interest is in biology. I mean, I, I lo- I'm interested in physics too, but biology is really. So, as somebody said, uh, not everybody can be a physicist, but everybody's a biologist. Um, that as humans, we include all of the life that came before us from the single cell uh, through, you know, the evolution of all species, actually. And in the womb, we go through stages where we, where we go through the DNA of fish and amphibian and, you know, we, we actually take that shape for a, for a moment in the womb and that we really uh, include all of life in us. I think that's the kind of whole, the, whole on. The question is more related to how do we evolve with higher consciousness, which is a more integrated process that accepts membership in a larger unity, planetary rather than tribal. How does that? Well, how? Well, there's some people who aren't very uh, active in that process. No, I know. I mean, I think we meditate because we're here and this is what's happening and something caught us and we're all here doing this. And I think it is a process of beginning to understand ourselves in a new way. That said, I also think that we evolve only at the mercy of evolution, that we don't evolve. Evolution evolves us. Uh, I I think we we play very little part in the game, to tell you the truth. I don't want to, you know, say stop meditating. It's not in your hands, but... That's what I believe. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So are you saying that you don't have a hope that mindfulness is an advancing evolutionary trait? Uh, is that what I'm saying? Are you, do you think that the work that's happening here is a small new evolutionary trend that might continue and widen? Are we going to survive better than the people that aren't meditating? See, there, there's, a, there's a person who understands evolution, and uh, we don't know, do we? I mean, maybe, maybe those who don't think at all about how they think will be the ones who survive. 
uh, and w- w- I think uh, Varela, when I was talking to him, one of the things he said, it was a really interesting take on, um, he said that if we, if we get too mindful of what we're doing, we'll, we'll be like a centipede who, who tries to coordinate all of his legs and gets totally tangled up because it, if, if you don't, you can't think about it as a centipede. And, uh, you know, just as you can't think about all the things that your uh, lizard brain takes care of. So I don't know if we're going to survive, but maybe we'll have more fun on the way to uh, oblivion. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I really do think that that's that at the bottom of what we're doing is a different kind of happiness, a, a kind of pleasure that. Um, at least as I age, I find to be a pleasure that surpasses uh, what I used to think of as pleasure. <laughs> but that may be just aging. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think I better quit while I'm ahead here. <laughs> okay, one more. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I want to throw out a comment. Um, I'm, I'm myself a scientist, and I get a little bit in this space of like wanting to evaluate my my work through my practice, my practice through my work, and um, I just two points, um, just apropos of our conversation, and that is that the, the brain has been shown to be very plastic and, and very changeable. So. Um, and they've also discovered that regions of the brain are actively, there are genes and there are actively parts of our conscious, so to speak, or our brain are undergoing evolution as we speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just want to point that out. So I want to, I guess, put, pose that as a challenge to the idea that meditation isn't some, I mean, isn't um, beneficial in a, if you want to map the world and our existence onto our evolutionary vector. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out was that neuroscience has, or maybe maybe you can, um, maybe you would you would disagree with this, but I just read the Dalai Lama's book on, you know, sort of his science book came out recently, and and he makes a very valid point that that no neuroscience has come up with an explanation for altruism, and um, yeah, I, I thought that was very right. compelling, is, right. is that there's great big questions and maybe right. Whatever answer them. I appreciate that. And, and not only have they not come up with an explanation for altruism, they haven't come up with an explanation for consciousness. They call it the hard problem. They don't know what it is, where it is, how it arises, where it comes from. Um, but I, I and I respect what you say. But as a scientist, I'm not a scientist. I'm just sort of a lay. I'm fascinated with it. I study it. I read it. But I, you know, I don't have an expertise in any particular branch of science. I sometimes think of us in meditation as actually being as objective as we can be by using this quality of mindfulness. We are as much as possible putting ourselves in the scientific mode of watching ourselves as the subject and trying to be objective, you know, which is often difficult. But uh, I and I also agree that there's they're finding that there's a lot of plasticity. But I think more than anything, I think the message coming out of science uh, right now is. We think we have a lot more freedom than we actually do and that we are not our fault. You are not your fault. I think that's the message. And, you know, you can do what you, you can to uh, try to change the way it is. But it's pretty, it's pretty uh, determined. I mean, the whole nature-nurture debate, I think, is really now shifting way over to nature. But I don't think that's bad. I actually think that we need to understand ourselves as nature uh, I think part of what has caused 
us to sort of get into this corner that we're in has been our sense of ourselves as outside of nature and uh, not subject to nature's laws. And that sort of paradigm shift is what we, what we need to do to come back into harmony. Anyway, let me finish by just this. I hope that responded to you. This is uh, Rumi. This is a poem called The Dream That Must Be Interpreted. This groggy time we live in, this is what it's like. A man goes to sleep in the town where he's always lived, and he dreams he's living in another town. In the dream, he doesn't remember the town he's sleeping in his bed in. He believes the reality of the dream town. The world is that kind of sleep. The dust of many crumbled cities settles over us like a forgetful doze. But we are older than those cities. We began as mineral. We merged into plant life and into the animal state and then into being human. And always we have forgotten our former states, except in early spring when we slightly recall being green again. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences. And though we seem to be sleeping, there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences. And though we seem to be sleeping, there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. Thank you all very much for having me. It was a delight to be with you. See you on the path somewhere.